0: So this evening I'd like to talk about the three characteristics, the four noble truths, the five hindrances, (laughs) the seven factors of enlightenment, the eightfold path. (laughs) Talk by the numbers. No, I'm not going to talk about any of those things uh, directly. And in fact, uh, I'm not sure what this talks about. <laughs> it's a kind of collection of things that I, I, I would like to share with you, and uh, so I'm going to do that. And in in between the sharings, you might have a question, you might have a, an addition, correction, and uh, feel free to raise your hand and uh, perhaps join in this non-talk. One way that we can understand what we're doing or frame what we're doing here in meditation practice is exploring identity. Who we are. I sometimes think the entire spiritual path can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. The disciples come to the master and they say, and the master says, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again until you do get it. It seems that we're all born with a case of mistaken identity. We believe that we are in here and the world is out there. We believe that we are always acting on the world, never realizing that the world is acting through us. It's a delusion of our understanding and our perception. And how we come to view ourselves, how we come to understand our lives, Determines how we how we feel about our lives and how we how we behave toward each other and the environment. It really makes a lot of difference who we think we are. So spiritual traditions through the ages have asked this question: Who are you? In the Hopi, they say uh, Hopi Pueblo. They say you must ask three questions: Where did I come from? Where am I going? What am I? Um, Socrates said, Know thyself. In Zen, they have some colorful ways of asking the question, Who is it that's dragging this corpse around? <laughs> Who is it that goes in and out of the sixth sense doors? The Buddha said, True happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. So a lot of what we do in in the practice is not only quiet the mind, not only learn to bring it into the present moment, but we begin to question the ownership of our breath and our body and our thoughts and our emotions, it's a quite quite a profound undertaking and a profound study. For some reason, we believe that we're in charge of the whole show; that we, in some way, created ourselves and are uh, and are the operators of this. Being we created. It's interesting. Uh, our our mythology. You know, we ask the question, "Who am I?" And and uh, in our mythology, we have come to the understanding or the belief that each of us is an individual soul. And what this life is all about, what this incarnation is all about, is saving that individual soul in some way, some kind of salvation, some kind of eternal life. It's a reflection of, the, of, of human arrogance. We've come to believe that the entire universe was made just for us. That might have held water back when we thought the sun went around the earth. But it's getting harder and harder to defend that position that the universe was made just for us. That means 200 billion galaxies. That was just for our entertainment or something. I'll put these up there and see if they can figure it out. (laughs) And our our major religions have come to regard the earth, basically, as a training planet. It's where you come to burn off some karma or learn some lessons, and then you get to go off to some other place where you truly belong. But it is my belief, and many people's belief, that this mythology, this cosmology, is dysfunctional because it takes our reverence away from this world and from this life. So these old stories are starting to be replaced by a new story that we are just learning. And the new story says that we are intertwined with all and everything, essentially. In physics, they call it entanglement. We are entangled with all and everything. You know, you're made of stardust, right? Literally, the explosion of supernova in the early history of the universe created all the heavy elements that make up our earth, make up our bodies. Zen Master Dogen says, this body is the body of the universe. He also said, I love this, he said, the earth is my Zafu, the universe is my Zendo. Mm -hmm. But we're getting a new story. The new story also tells us that we are related to all the life that's ever lived on this planet. Bound together by this elegant, spiraling double helix, these strands of miracle molecule. Every living being is grown by DNA. It's what sort of separates life from non-life. And we share so much of our DNA. We share nearly 99.999% of our DNA with each other. Identical. Almost the whole thing. Our individual differences are just a little bit of uh, variation in, in the instruction manual. We are related to every being that's ever lived. The story of evolution is everybody's autobiography. Plant, animal, mineral, for that matter. So we're starting to get this whole new story of who we are. But it takes a long time, of course, for it to have an impact or to seep into our the marrow of our being to become part of our consciousness and the consciousness we live out of. And that's where I think the Dharma comes in. Just a little, little bit more about the sense of mistaken identity and how our culture has reached a, uh, a the pinnacle of individualism, and that is part of our malaise, part of our uh, our problem and it's it's interesting to note that it didn 't always feel this way to be somebody, but this is not necessarily the normal way to feel about being a a person alive. Famous psychologist Rollo May Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live unaware that it was unknown in the middle ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. There have been studies of the early Greek literature that show that or indicate that the early Greeks thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods. Suddenly they were hearing voices in their heads and it was the gods talking. We, of course, would think that's kind of schizophrenic or something. But now, of course, we think all the voices in our heads are ours. which is its own form of misidentification. We've come to sort of an uncomfortable extreme of individualism here in the land of personalized license plates. (laughs) The first use of the word individualism, 1835, in a book about America by Alex de Tocqueville, first use of the word individualism. He he wrote, the meaning of one's life for most Americans is to become one's own person, almost to give birth to oneself. Robert Bella in his famous book, Habits of the Heart, the ethos of American individualism is to seek radical private validation. That's why we call it the culture of narcissism. The Buddha, again, you know, true happiness can only be found by the elimination of the false conceit of I or me. So, we come to meditation and we sit down and we start to look closely at our experience and our, how our senses work and thinking mind and And I suggest, and and this happens, I think, to some degree, organically as well. But I suggest that you bring that question, like a colon, to your practice. I'm really angry. Where did that come from? Who who owns that? Where did where did it start? How how come it's there now? Suddenly. Those thoughts. Where. Who who was thinking those thoughts? I'd like to get him in a back alley. (laughs) But to examine your experience with a little bit of that question of, of who owns it, The Buddha says you will go through all of your experiencing, of all the four foundations of mindfulness, body and breath and feelings and emotions and mental life, and if you look closely, you will find this is not I, this is not me, this is not who I am. This this is a false uh, understanding if you think you own it. I mean, of course, you don't own it in the sense that it's disappearing as it happens, you know, in the sense of its impermanence. Science, our new story, our new mythology is going to be, almost no doubt, based on science and what it finds and uh science says so the story of evolution says we're we come together as a human being as a member of a particular species at a particular moment in this ongoing evolution of life on this planet with particular appendages and particular senses and ways of being and uh we arise out of the the mixture, and uh, then disappear, like uh, 99% of all the other species. And indeed, we are magnificent, but we are deeply embedded in that process, and we are not somehow, as far as we know, different from it or specially created. I'm obsessed with finding little stories or facts or explanations for why things are the way they are, and there is a reason why everything is the way it is. For instance, your curly little ear, you know how it's all curled up in there? That's because it's designed to catch sound shadows that come from the side or the back, So the ear picks up the wave and lets you know exactly what direction it's coming from. I'm always, uh, uh, one of my favorites is uh, the origin of the head because we are really identified with our heads, right? I mean, heads are us. (laughs) Well, the first head was an extra group of cells that grew up on one end of a little, jelly-like creature, marine creature, to help manipulate the mouth to uh, to bring, suck the food in and then somehow push it back into the body of the little creature. And and then of course the senses kind of grew up there to help that process as well and, and pretty soon, you know, there was a head on one end of beings and uh, basically the head is about eating and making sure you don't get eaten you know it's the senses are all there right around the mouth you know the brain all that's what it's all about <laughs> i mean we love our heads you know we love other people's heads but you know it's good to it's good to understand these things Of course, there weren't any, any legs in the world or feet for the first two billion years of life because there was no land. Nobody needed feet or legs. So, so to begin to understand, I mean, and there's a great passage in, in one of the suttas. I don't know which one it is, but it's been confirmed that he said it. You know, as, as sure as we are that, that he said everything people say he said. <laughs> uh, the Buddha said, This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now it should be felt. It's not mine or anyone else's. It's come together due to causes and conditions. And, you know, Grove was talking about thinking mind yesterday. And uh, thinking is an amazing adaptation and allows us to make symbols for things in the outside world and then share those meanings with each other and pass them on to future generations. And it's it's a brilliant adaptation. I'm not sure why why I mentioned that, but (laughs) Um, all this is to say, you know, that I think we're in a really transition moment, and and when I say transition moment, when we're talking about mythology and cosmology and what we believe and how we feel about ourselves, we're talking. A long time, like centuries and millennia, that it takes for something like this to sort of really take hold, but I think that actually we are working on on that shift, and uh, it's kind of exciting when you think that you know that's the project you're involved in. It's not to save your individual soul or become enlightened and you know, have bliss forevermore or live happily ever after, however you want to put it. You know, our Constitution says we have the right to pursue happiness, which implies that it's running away from us somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I I say all that to talk about how Uh, you can frame what we're doing as a real um, big project. And we're not doing it in some way, you know. The Buddha discovered that as a human being he had this ability to take this part of his mind and develop it, this mindfulness which was uh, some there were some hindus apparently in the, in the the upanishads refer to mindfulness so there was some uh, understanding of it before the buddha came along but he really refined it and figured out that you that humans can step out of their drama and observe themselves which is a was a great leap of of consciousness really and we're just starting actually to to experiment we're we're part of the first Group of, group of people to really uh, explore this tool, this new, this new uh, appendage in the evolutionary story. Okay, I'm just going to kind of move on here uh, with a poem or, that I think speaks to what we're talking about. But first, a quote from Alan Watts. What we need is a view of ourselves that is less grandiose. He writes All the other species of life seem to be free from our human scheming and self importance. The birds and beasts indeed pursue their business of eating and breeding with the utmost devotion, but they do not pretend that it serves higher ends or that it makes a significant contribution to the progress of the world. He says, Our human projects and talents such as the power of thought are indeed natural marvels, but so are the immense beaks of the toucans, and the fabulous tails of the birds of paradise, the towering necks of the giraffes, and the polychromed posteriors of the baboons. And when we can view our talents as just one among many of nature's wonders, then our self-importance dissolves in laughter Furthermore, we will begin to see that we have become too cunning and practical for our own good. And for this very reason, we are in need of a new philosophy which, like nature, has no purpose or consequence other than itself." (laughs) Watts also said, if some alien creature were to see a human being, they might say, look at that wiggly contraption over there. I wanted to say a little more about our relatedness to all the other life, because we are sitting out there in the field whenever we deem it the weather to be nice enough for us. <laughs> you know that we that I get ribbed, <laughs> he too, uh, for, you know, we're going out on a nature retreat and then, you know, we spend most of our time up here. <laughs> They're afraid of a little chill wind. <laughs> uh But uh, I'm always fascinated when I, I read this whole paper about the DNA. You know, we've you see it in the, all the time in science news and stuff. But we're, our DNA is about 99.999% identical to everybody else's. That includes the Dalai Lama and you know. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh's <laughs> right. It gets worse. Uh, we share, uh, as you probably know, over 98 percent with the uh, great apes, nearly 90 percent with mice. That's because most of the instructions for building and maintaining you are instructions for building a basic mammal with a digestive system and a nervous system and a you know sensory system and a metabolistic system, and uh, that takes a lot of information. Volumes and volumes and volumes worth of information. So 90% we share of of that with mice. Nearly 70% with worms. Worms actually invented the spine. They were the first vertebrates. Oh, this is another fun thing that I love. The fact that nature keeps using the same floor plan if you look at other creatures almost all of them have a head on one end and a tailpipe on the other little appendages somewhere along the elongated body that move it that are in charge of the mobility mostly the senses are up around the head it's pretty insects have it you know it's like the design was basic and it worked and nature kept it anyway we're we're going on uh we share nearly f- 50% of our dna with yeast <laughs> you and the slime are just like that <laughs> the more we can sense ourselves as part of the web of life the better off we're going to be I mean if you look outside right now and you see the green and you know you know that the sun the, the, the plant kingdom is eating the sun, eating the energy of the sun transforming it and then we eat it or we eat other beings that eat it but it is really the genius of the planet, being able to take the sun's energy and turn it into living energy uh, for organisms on this planet. But there's a little bit of all the past of life in us. Uh, last, uh, uh, last two nights ago, remember, I told you about the three brains. This is a poem by Carl Sandburg called Wilderness. There is a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat and the hot lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. There is a fox in me, a silver gray fox. I sniff and guess and I pick things out of the wind and air and I nose in the dark night. I circle a loop and double cross. There is a hog in me. A snout and a belly, a machinery for eating and grunting, a machinery for sleeping satisfied in the sun. I got this too from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fish in me. I scurried. I blew spouts with porpoises before land was, before the water went down. There's a baboon in me, clamoring clawed, dog-faced, yapping a galoot's hunger, hairy under the armpits. Ready to sing and give milk, I keep the baboon because the wild wilderness says so. There's an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra Crags of what I want. And the mockingbird warbles in the early forenoon before the dew is gone, warbles in the underbrush of my Chattanoogas of hope, gushes over the blue Ozark foothills of my wishes. And I got the eagle and the mockingbird from the wilderness. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red-valve heart, and I got something else. It is a man-child heart, a woman-child heart. It is a father and mother, lover. It came from God knows where. It's going to God knows where. I am the keeper of the zoo. Sometimes I say yes, sometimes no. I sing and kill and work. I came from the wilderness. So that's part 1. Mm-hmm. I can feel when I meditate Quite often I can feel the the past life of the planet kind of in there, you know? The incessant desire, the incessant planning, you know, the the hum of all those primal instincts still there. They're not I, they're not me, they're not mine. The wilderness gave them to me, but... I'm going to get to a a little piece written by Mark Twain about evolution here in a second, but... Oh, yeah, I'll just go right to it. This was written in 1903, not published during Twain's lifetime. Like many of his so-called dark writing, uh, it was too radical. Uh, He would have been lynched, probably, when some of his critiques of Christianity were just, you know, way over the top for his time. But anyway, he wrote this about the wild debate that was going on about evolution, and uh, he called it, Was the World Made for Man? He says, I seem to be the only scientist and theologian still remaining to be heard from on this important matter of whether the world was made for man or not. I feel it is time for me to speak. And I stand almost with the others. They believe the world was made for man. I believe likely the world was made for man. According to the latest figures, it took 99,968,000 years to prepare the world for man. Impatient as the creator, doubtless, was to see him and admire him. But a large enterprise like this has to be conducted warily, painstakingly, logically. It was foreseen... That man, once he arrived, would have to have the oyster. (laughs) Therefore, the first preparation was made for the oyster. Very well, you cannot make an oyster out of whole cloth. You must make the oyster's ancestor first. This is not done in a day. You must make a vast variety of invertebrates to start with, trilobites, jebusites, that sort of critter. Put them to soak in a primary sea and wait and see what will happen. Some will be a disappointment. They will die out and become extinct in the course of the 19 million years covered by the experiment. But all's not lost. For the Amalekites will develop gradually into Encronites in one thing and another, as the mighty ages creep on, and the Archaean and Cambrian periods pile their lofty crags in the primordial seas. And at last, the first stage in the preparation of the world for man stands completed. the oyster is done. Now, an oyster has hardly any more reasoning power than a scientist has, and so it is reasonably certain that this one jumped to the conclusion that the 19 million years was a preparation for him. But that would be just like an oyster, which is the most conceited animal there is, except for man, of course. Anyway, this oyster could not know at that early date that he was only an incident in a scheme, and there was more to the scheme yet. The oyster being achieved, the next thing was in preparation of the world for man was fish and coal to fry it with. So the old cerulean seas were opened up to breed the fish in and he talks about making a coal bed and how much trouble it is and you grow forests and you drown them and then you sink them and you bring another forest and you sink it and so millions of years drag on. In the meantime, the fish culture's lazing along, frazzling out in a way to make a person tired. You've developed 10,000 kinds of fishes from the oyster. And come to look, you've raised nothing but fossils, nothing but extinctions, <laughs> nothing left alive and progressive but of a ganoid or two. And even the cat wouldn't eat such a fish. Anyway. The Paleozoic time limit now having been reached, it was necessary to begin the next stage in the preparation of the world for man by opening up the Mesozoic age and instituting some reptiles. For man would need reptiles not to eat but to develop himself from. (laughs) This being the most important detail of the scheme, a spacious liberality of time was set apart for it 30 million years. And what wonders followed? Those stupendous saurians that used to prowl about the steamy world in those remote ages with their snaky heads reared 40 feet in the air and 60 feet of body and tail racing and thrashing, it took 30 million years and 20 million reptiles to get one that would stick long enough to develop into something else and let the scheme proceed. The Paradactyl, it burst upon the world in all its impressive solemnity and grandeur. It may be the Paradactyl thought the 30 million years had been intended as a preparation for himself, for there was nothing too foolish for a Paradactyl to imagine, but he was in error the preparation was for man. <laughs> For this time, from this time onward, for nearly another thirty million years, the preparation moved briskly. From the pterodactyl was developed the bird. From the bird, the kangaroo. From the kangaroo, the other marsupials. From these, the mastodon, the giant sloth, the Irish elk, and all that crowd you make useful and instructive fossils out of. Then came the first great ice sheet, and they all retreated before it. Crossed over the bridge at Bering Strait and wandered around over Europe and Asia, and then they died. All all except a few to carry on the preparations with. Six glacial periods with two million years between chased these poor orphans up and down and about the earth from weather to weather, tropic swelter at the poles to Arctic frost at the equator, back again to and fro. They never knowing what kind of weather was going to turn up next. If they ever settled down anywhere, the whole continent would suddenly sink under them. Without the least notice, they had to trade places with the fishes, scramble off to where the seas had been, scarcely a dry rag on them. And when there was nothing else doing, a volcano would let go and fire them out from wherever they had located. They led this unsettled, irritating life for 25 million years, always wondering what it was all for, never suspecting, of course, that it was preparation for man and had to be done just so, or it wouldn't be a proper harmonious place for him when he arrived. And then at last came the monkey, and anyone could see that man wasn't far off now. And in truth, that was so. The monkey went on developing for close on to five million years and then turned, to all appearances, into a man. Such is the history of it. Man's been here 32,000 years. That it took 100 million years to prepare the world for him is proof that that's what it was all done for, I suppose. I don't know. If the Eiffel Tower were now representing the world's age, the skin of paint on the pinnacle top at its summit would represent man's share of that age, and anybody would perceive that that skin was what the tower was built for. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's a brilliant, brilliant piece. but And we still, don't, we still don't quite get it, you know? We still don't quite get it. So, I think I might be, uh, I might open up the floor to uh, any questions or comments about what's been said so far. I do want to end with uh, a few haiku, but we have some time. Anybody wants to add their two cents or five cents? You were shaking your head. You're a, you're an anthropologist. I'm married to a biologist. Oh, you're married to a biologist. I'm an evolutionary biologist. Uh huh. I guess one of the things that really
1: interests me is there are about 10 trillion cells in each of us, human cells, and about 100 trillion bacterial cells in and on us. The microbiome. I mean, I think we're just created to house
0: bacteria. I've heard that speculation, yes. The bacteria invented humans as a a moving (laughs) feedlot. Well, Lynn Margulis, the famous molecular biologist said, uh, apropos of the Dharma, our concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. And they were here first, those little single-celled beings. They now, the, 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 I don't know if your husband does, but the scientists now talk about LUCA. They've, na- they've given a name to the first being. Oh. L- uh, LUCA stands for the last universal common ancestor. Oh. But every other being has evolved from that beginning. Animals, mm-hmm. the whole. The whole show. My husband doesn't talk about Luca, but <laughs> he talks about Adam and Eve. <laughs> <laughs> he does? Well, you know, the mother of all civilization, of all people, you can find it through the mitochondrial DNA. Mm-hmm. Oh, Eve, yeah, right. Um, What about Lucy?
1: Well, Lucy um, wasn't human.
0: Wasn't human. Uh-huh. At Australopithecus or something like that. Homo Lucy was Homo Uh huh. That ruins my joke. I'm going to have to take my joke out. Because I used to have this joke about the scientists say Lucy was the mother of us all. So we can presume the father of us all was Ricky. You know, but it does, if it wasn't uh, in, our de- in our line of descent, I'll, I'll I'll go for it. I'll I'll fake it. Um, are you a a scientist? Yeah,
2: I'm trained as an evolutionary
0: biologist. Uh-huh. Did I get anything wrong? <laughs> Nobody knows anymore. Mm-hmm. What is See, I think it's so interesting. What is the spiritual message of this story? First of all, this story is as miraculous as any by any story ever dreamed up by any anybody anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's as kind of kind of miraculous, like parting of the Red Sea, kind of miraculous. You know, it's uh, what, who is it? Uh, E.O. Wilson, the famous mm-hmm. biologist, says to imagine that a human being could emerge through random chance in the universe would be like imagining a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747 <laughs> that uh, implying that there's something going on here that is we none of us know have a clue about, you know.
1: I you know, if you talk to an evolutionary biologist, they'll say the object of each cell is to reproduce and whatever it takes
2: Of uh, this branch of biology, the recent work where the people were able to predict the exact genome of a child using sputum from and some blood from the mother—I may have read about it—and it took less. I actually kept track of it. It took less than a week before a columnist of the New York Times was decrying it as. Rebirth of eugenics and how we should stop this. We saw it during the Bush administration where stem cell research was stopped, largely based on his personal religious beliefs. But the whole idea that if we learn about genetics, we are automatically going to use genet- genetics in some sort of
0: evil, right? Evil yeah, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Yeah.
1: of the United States
0: population does not believe in it. Still? Still.
2: Yeah, it's pretty high. So, the only industrialized nation that has a, according to some research, a higher percentage of people that believe in creationism than the United States is (laughs) Turkey. And the scopes, monkey
0: I'd like to go go back just for a minute to to the spiritual message of, of evolution. Uh, I think that it really tells tells us um, the same thing the Buddha was saying. You know, this is not I. This is not mine. This is not myself. Evolution is really saying, "You are not your fault." You're born as a member of a particular species at a particular moment, and your shape and your nervous system and every just about everything about you and is is pretty much set by this body you're born into and this time you're born into and I mean I'm not saying that you know there's no hope, but I am kind of saying that. Uh, I mean I, I wouldn't be here teaching meditation if I didn't think there was some freedom to uh, mitigate uh, the suffering and, and enhance our quality of, of being but I think it's a pretty narrow window. It's not all genetics. No, it's not all genetics at all, no. and I think a lot is you are when you are alive. I mean, if I'd have been born 30 years earlier, I would never would have heard of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. I just happened to be in a particular generation where this was happening, and I had the means and the leisure, and I could go. You know, so much of how we are and who we are and what we do is determined by the circumstances and the context in which we act and we've come so far from that we believe that we are in charge of the whole thing it's an onerous burden to think that you are totally you know in control of your destiny because you can never do it well enough you can never be good enough i'm sorry go ahead you i just keep going. couldn't God create them? I mean, I just don't understand. Well, Peter, there's, there's got to be, I don't know. Because he, he was busy creating the oyster. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. <It's> actually, <laughs> Luca. <laughs> Luca, right. Um,
3: I, I think the question of evolution and its spiritual trace, um, it gives me sort of a, a pause, a little bit around ethics, because if it takes blame off of us, then it also seems to alleviate a will or um, a drive to intervene and to do something um, mm-hmm. that would eliminate inequality, mm-hmm. stop global warming, these mm-hmm. sorts of things, and so. Um, I know that this has come up before in other retreats that I've been on with Buddhism in general, that if you sort of detach, how can you also stay um engaged and dedicated to ending suffering? So could you say more about that?
0: Yeah, I think that it doesn't one doesn't they aren't uh mutually uh exclusive or, or contradictory, but you can work to alleviate suffering no matter what, uh, no matter what the program of evolution is, uh, I think it, it's. Yeah, I think they're perfectly compatible. I don't. I don't.
3: Well, like maybe I could say so. You know, some people understood evolution during eugenics to be survival of the fittest. And right, so, therefore, all inequality that existed at that time was a wasn't a production of human systems but was indeed a sort of reflection of a natural hierarchy that should exist, and so therefore, people can die off because mm-hmm. um, you know their poverty is a sign of their lack of fitness and mm-hmm. so um, you know that that term yeah, that I hear what you is yeah. um with evolution so carefully that I wonder how we can disarticulate that into, like, really articulate evolution in terms of ethics instead of survival of ethics.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, Darwin didn't say red and tooth and cloth. And um, right. secondly, the Puritans believed about the same. Predestination <laughs>
4: <laughs> That was from the 19th century, yeah. when evolution was in the air. And it wasn't really so much social Darwinism as biological Spencerism, that the survival of the fittest was applied to human societies by Spencer and others before Origin of the Species came out. And so it's a misapplication. And that biological evolution is often very subtle, not the red and tooth and claw, but a new digestive enzyme or a new protective coloring or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah.
0: Anyway, I think I think we're going to get too uh, lost in in thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do want to address your question though, because I think it's a it's an important one, and it it very well could be that the the uh, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the next Buddha will be a sangha. That it very well may be that it is in the taking care of ourselves as a group. Uh, Will alleviate the suffering. That it isn't about uh, just about you know survival of the fittest, or and and also it feels good. I mean, beings like to do things that feel good, and if, if it feels good to take care of somebody or love somebody, uh, it's 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 a positive thing.
4: We might want to take that all the way up to that image you gave us of the ecosphere. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Lynn Margolis, and she worked with James Lovelock on the Gaia hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the whole earth is like a super self-regulating organism. Yes. And so it's interesting. I don't know what to say, but you can take it very literally or very spiritually Mm -hmm.
0: or just as a metaphor. Yeah, and when we're sitting out there, sometimes it feels like the whole... The whole environment is breathing along with you, you know. You feel a lot more energy than sitting here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so one one more and then
1: I just was noticing that there's an interesting um, connection. Neil Postman actually uh makes an argument for Earth as Spaceship as a unifying narrative that might be a functional...
0: Earth as Spaceship.
1: Yes, that we're we're all in this together, and and the survival of the people down in engineering does actually require the effort of the people up on the bridge, and vice versa, (laughs) Um, and taking that concept as a way to get to... Um, a better approach in light of what I think is I suppose my supposition is we're afraid of dying that's what no disrespect to my creationist friends but that's what I find motivates the primary fear of believing that we're connected to apes which they already said didn't have a soul and if we don't have a soul then we don't go to heaven and so then we're going to have to really die (laughs) um <laughs> yeah. And, sure. and my experience with virtually every world religion <clears throat> is is that on some level it is an attempt to get out of the inevitable, right? <laughs> Evolution means we're going to die. I don't think that that makes us unusual. I think that every creature <laughs> out there is
0: without death, there some
1: element of the same fear. Yeah. A like little, you know. But but maybe we.
0: Without death, there would be no evolution, right? No, that's very, very uh, interesting that you should say that. That's I, the Buddha said. Uh, of he said, just as in the jungle the elephant's footprint is supreme. Just so, of all the meditations that I te- teach, the meditation on death and dying is supreme. Uh, he considered it very important to think about the fact that you're not going to be here long, and uh, to practice hard so that you could realize the truth, because you're in this human form, this precious human form. Anyway, uh, what a smart group of uh, yogis we got here. It's too bad we told them to stop thinking, huh? (laughs) Again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I think uh, I stirred things up here, but uh, what to do. <coughs> Let me uh, offer you some haiku to close it out, because haiku is really, you know, just a few words stating some profound truth. A few poems by Kobayashi Issa, who was uh, a Japanese haiku poet. He lived uh, in the 1800s, had a very tragic life. Children died, house burned down. But was a wonderful poet about nature and uh, is revered in Japan. Often wrote his haiku poems about other species of life or sometimes two other species of life so a few haiku from kobayashi isa don't worry spiders i keep house casually <laughs> oh owl make some other face it's spring <laughs> On how to sing, the Frog School and Skylark School are arguing. (laughs) One human being, one fly, in a large room. Where there are flies, you'll find... No, I'm sorry. Where there are humans, you'll find flies and Buddhas. Even among the insects, some can sing, some can't. (laughs) Even for the emperor, the nightingale sings the same song. Out from the darkness, back into the darkness, the affairs of the cat. Okay, three more. Mosquito at my ear? Does it think I'm deaf? (laughs) In these latter-day degenerate times, cherry blossoms everywhere. And this is my favorite. This world of ours, walking on the roof of hell, gazing at flowers. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.